Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Bunker, the podcast that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. I'm your host, emitting a strange wheezing groaning sound, Andrew Harrison. Don't you think she's looking tired? Just by whispering these words into the ear of a special advisor, David Tennant's 10th Doctor Who brought down Prime Minister Harriet Jones, MP for Flydale North, and all she'd done was order the destruction of a Sycorax spaceship as it was attempting to leave Earth orbit. All very Belgrano. It's far from the only time that Doctor Who has dabbled in real-world politics, from environmentalism to colonialism to fascism to 80s villainesses who more than slightly resembled Margaret Thatcher to stories in the 1970s about the primitive planet Peladon acceding to a galactic federation, which very closely mirrored Britain's entry into what was then the common market. And in its most recent incarnation, with Jodie Whittaker as the first female Doctor, the series inevitably got dragged into the culture wars. The show is back on Saturday, as are David Tennant, Catherine Tate as returning companion Donna Noble, and the showrunner behind its astonishing revival in 2005, Russell T. Davis, all to celebrate the show's 60th anniversary. So when else are we going to have the excuse to talk about the politics of Doctor Who? To discuss these weighty matters, we've assembled a panel from across time, space and Scotland. <laughs> Our special guest is Jenny Colgan, best-selling writer of romantic comedy fiction and of Doctor Who spin-off books. She's such a Who fiend that she's got a TARDIS tattoo. Hello, Jenny. Hello, how are you? Very good. Great to have you on the podcast. Also with us from the New Statesman, it's Papercuts regular, John Ellidge. Hello, John. Hello. And completing the panel, it's Bunker regular and a man who can rock a velvet smoking jacket like John Pertwee. Doctor Seth Tavo. Hello, Doctor Seth Tavo. Greetings to you, my good man. So good of you to join us, Doctor. Now let's do the big question first. Certain people say Doctor Who is not like it used to be. It's got too political lately. John, why are they wrong? Anyone who can watch old Doctor Who and not see politics in it is not paying enough attention. I think a lot of people just have these sort of childhood memories where they haven't thought about the issues being discussed. But there's like there's loads of stuff about the fall of empires, there's stuff about immigration. There is also, uh, I found in the Spectator archive from the 26th of May, 1973, a piece about how wonderful Doctor Who is as a piece of television, which goes, only one thing causes me concern at the moment, a growing tendency on the part of the Doctor to moralise tediously about peace, love and brotherhood. This was in the middle of, um, I think, the Green Death, which is, <laughs> so, which is the one with the maggots, if you yes. know that one. So essentially, Doctor Who was too woke. In it was too woke in 1973 when John Pertwee was in control of the TARDIS. Doctor Who was already too woke. So Jenny, you write the Doctor on occasion. You've written stuff with the Matt Smith incarnation. Do you have the kind of Doctor's political context in your head while you're you're writing him? Because he's often seen as a kind of like an Enlightenment figure, traveling the universe, wielding reason against superstition and so forth. Oh yeah, I mean completely. I mean one of the really big things I did when I wrote for. Jodie was literally, this is why, I think this is why they don't ask me to do it anymore, but I wrote one entire story based around an unexpected period. Okay. Which I was not <laughs> sure they were quite prepared for. Yes, I do. Absolutely. Constantly he's coming or she is coming from a basis of, and I think enlightenment's a good way of putting it, but I'm definitely on the whole erring on the sappy side of things. I mean, as John just mentioned then, in the, in the early John Pertwee stories of, of the early 70s, they do colonialism, militarism, big business, fascism, environmentalism and genocide. And that's only in four stories. I would say that you could probably make a case for colonialism being the absolute default of every single Doctor Who story there's ever been, really. Anti-colonialism, to be clear. It's generally on the side of the oppressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
can. I think that's. I think you're right in saying that. However, quite a lot of it is uh, the Doctor appearing on different planets, smartly dressed and looking white, and kind of explaining to them how things ought to be. So, you know, yes and no. He is a posh white man who went to Space Oxbridge. But it is, I mean, the whole of that period of Doctor Who is basically about post-imperial guilt. It's a bunch of middle-class British people feeling a bit embarrassed about the, the Empire, which is not that long ago then. Yeah. I mean, Seth, the John Pertwee bit, the third Doctor, where, as I just mentioned, this is where we meet the Silurians, the original owners of planet Earth, the kind of homo reptilia, the intelligent dinosaurs. And the story is really kind of, it's, it's very ambiguous, isn't it? Because at the end... I think after 50 years, we're allowed to do spoilers. Uh, the Brigadier kills them all. And the Doctor just kind of tuts and then turns away. And he's quite happy to go back working for the military-industrial complex straight afterwards. And a lot of the uh, moral base of the Doctor really is actually from the Barry Letts and Terence Dixie as, as producer and script editor in the John Pertwee era, saying that the Doctor is never cruel and never cowardly, which is laid down by Terence Dix in a tie-in book, but is resurrected by Stephen Moffat in the modern era. You know, our idea of the Doctor as this political figure becomes very in your face around that time and I don't think has gone away. What's interesting is the original idea of Doctor If you go back to the very early stories of the 60s under William Hartnell, it is very political. I mean, you can't see the Daleks and not see a commentary on nuclear apocalypse and mm. on the ethics of nuclear war. And even very early stories from their first year, things like the Aztecs about the morality of intervention in another society. One of the Doctor's companions is mistaken for an Aztec goddess and is appalled to see human sacrifice going on and says, I want to put a stop to it. And it's a question of, no, you, you can't intervene in this way. You can't rewrite one line of history, not one line of it is the same. What I think is interesting, actually, in, in sort of the classic era Doctor Who is um, the Patrick Troughton era, the, the second Doctor between the two we've talked about. Because actually, the script writing and the story writing became a little bit more simplistic, a bit more formulaic around that time. And if ever there's a case for Doctor Who having been apolitical, it's probably around the Troughton era. But Troughton's also this very moral figure. You know, he he takes the grandfatherliness of William Hartnell and he's a sort of hippie peacenik dropout, I suppose. And he's somebody who you always feel is on the right side of things, whereas William Hartnell just grumpy and stuff happened to him and then he took credit for it and then they buggered off. I mean, the kind of default behaviour of William Hartnell is, we must get back to the ship, i.e. we must get out of this terrible situation. And the default behaviour of Patrick Troughton is, well, I don't really want to be here, but I suppose I'll have to fix it. Yes, exactly. And then sort of saying, oh, did I do all that? Never mind, none of your business. We get that handy establishment vibe from Patrick Troughton. But it's, it's really the sort of John Pertwee years, you know, whether you love them or loathe them. And I, I mean, they're my favourites, actually. They really establish the Doctor as this slightly paradoxical, slightly aloof, slightly detached, deeply moral figure who is unambiguously on the side of good. That wasn't even necessarily the case with either of the two Doctors up to that point. Jenny, I mean, the Doctor is kind of now seen as a, an absolute hero, no matter what the face or the gender. And it's kind of a given that he or she will turn up in a place where things are going wrong and put it right, sometimes to the extent of being quite interfering. I went to a really interesting talk the other day from Matthew Sweet, who was talking about Doctor Who and ethics, and he pointed out that history only really happens on Earth. Earth is the only place you can't interfere with what's going on, but on other planets, you can go and reorder <laughs> their society in any old way you like, because you're the Doctor, and they, they have to listen to you. What kind of a hero is this figure to you? Is it is it the kind of person who is always sort of squarely on the side of morality, or is it just interfering for the sheer joy of it? 
mean, he does just go to other planets and kind of, you know, tell them where they're not quite, you know, doing it in line with prep school. I think people do like different kinds of doctors. And I think William Hartnell was a grumpy headmaster type. Peter Davison was a real teacher's doctor. Mm. <laughs> you know, he's a good doctor teacher. Whereas, you know, Tom Baker being very unpredictable is quite worrying. I think the idea of the doctor being a moral centre has become less and less. And I think it's interesting because it's been going for so long. When we've lost these kind of Douglas Bader style heroes in our own traditions, we've also lost them in the doctor. You can't be perfect anymore because nobody is, not Winston, not anyone. And now quite a lot of Doctor Who is about saving the doctor from themselves and, you know, not being you know, stopping them from going completely insane and setting everything on fire, which is an interesting dynamic. But yes, I, I don't think that the Doctor is a centre of moral goodness at all. And if they were, it would be both dull and kind of very, very repetitive. It's very strange when you see the hero become an anti-hero and then back to a hero again. I think part of the shift is that Doctor Who is now, has, has been since it came back, it's written by Doctor Who fans. It's not just people who grew up with the show, that kind of shift starts in the 80s. It's people who have been very engaged in the show. Like a lot of Moffat, Stephen Moffat's episodes were like, you can find the posts on the Usenet group Recarts Doctor Who in, in the wilderness years in the 90s, in which he starts speculating about things like whether, you know, actually we get our word doctor from the doctor, which later finds its way into an episode. But I think that is that is why the sort of shift in the sort of role of the doctor in the series happens, that it becomes about saving him from himself to some extent. It's because it's people who've spent far too many decades of their lives thinking about this stuff. Yes, one line from the era of Patrick Troughton always sticks in my head, where he says, there are some corners of the universe that have bred the most terrible things, things which act against everything we believe in. They must be fought. And I've rewatched the show from the beginning. I'm in the middle of coming to the end of Pertwee now. And you see that becomes a real turning point because it's the doctor's justification for liberal interventionism. It's the doctor's justification for but effectively saying there is good and evil in the universe. It's not just a case of I turn up on this planet, nose around, and then try and get back on my ship as fast as possible. Jenny, you're nodding. Do you, do you remember that as a moment? I, do, I don't remember it as a moment, but I love that kind of, you know, what we know to be wrong as a statement is incredibly interesting. You know, what we all know to be wrong is you probably shouldn't send refugees to Rwanda to take an example and yet there's loads of people that would come on any radio show right now and argue that that was like the correct moral thing to do. So it is really interesting to me, this idea of a kind of shared consensus view of what we all know to be right or wrong or whatever. And of course, that fractures and fractures as our media has fractured and our shared reality has fractured. So we're kind of tumbling into a kind of chaotic Doctor Who universe. Yes. <laughs> we need them more than ever. But it's a very kind of human-centric idea of what's right and wrong, isn't it? Although he's not a human, he actually behaves like the most human human there is. Well, and also oh. he despises his own we. If he's talking about we, he means Time Lords, and, and yet he hates all of them. So who's his we here? I think it's really interesting how he needs not just from a dramatic point of view, but from a moral point of view, bad stuff to happen to define him. Because without that, you'd have quite a boring series. I mean, I'd point to you, there's a really early four-parter called The Romans, which is a comedy, and is mainly about the TARDIS crew saying, let's go back to ancient Rome, 
have a very nice time and there'll be a few funny mix-ups and so on and some people who've been hired from Carry On Clio to do much the same sort of role and it's a jolly romp and it's very enjoyable but I doubt we'd still be talking about it 60 years on if that was the template for the show you know it's about good and evil. I mean, one of my favourite stories from what well, I love the Heart Malira, because like, there isn't a template for the show yet, so it goes all over the place. One of my favourite stories is one which sadly doesn't exist, but which the soundtrack is amazing. It's called The Myth Makers, where the TARDIS lands in the story of the Iliad. And it's full of all these kind of round the horn style, you know, movie jokes. It's like a film parody. And then in episode four, like the Greeks burst out the horse and everybody dies. And it's a total shift in tone. But there is kind of that sort of confidence that they can do whatever they want in the series at that point. Talking about themes that wouldn't really make it into the show right now. What do we think are the most politically dodgy of the old Doctor Who's? Because there's a, a fantastic story, a Tom Baker story called The Talons of Wang Chiang, which is essentially oh the God. Doctor versus Fu Manchu. And the Doctor kind of effectively becomes Sherlock Holmes. But it's full of yellow face. The yellow face isn't the worst thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it is full of yellow face, and that's incredibly bad. But I watched it a few years ago when I was watching the entire series in order, and actually the worst thing about it is the way it treats Chinese guest stars as basically Daleks. They're this undifferentiated mass. Mm. Like, the character in yellow face, played by a white actor, is actually quite sympathetically drawn. It's the treatment of the entire, you know, a fifth of the world's population as as monsters basically is far more horrible i think yeah and and it, it is it's not just the central character who is treated quite sympathetically but the kind of the plight of the chinese in london in victorian times is discussed and yet when they appear they're just punched and stabbed and disposed of aren't they mm, yeah completely they are treated like any other alien race except yeah. they're the human beings do we have other kind of uh, doctor who's that we think might be uh, better to be sweep under the curtain Tomb of the Cybermen is tricky because there are so many things about it that still make it an absolute classic, but the character of Toberman, who's the black mute servant, is pretty inexcusable. And he's he's not a minor plot point, he's actually quite central to the story's resolution. Yeah, and it is one of the classics. This is where there is literally a frozen storage of uh, Cybermen thought long defeated, which foolish humans open with terrible, terrible consequences, and yet you've got this terrible racist caricature there are a couple of stories in the very early years before. I think actually in the earliest years, it hadn't yet settled down as being a consistently progressive show. It often is. But there are a couple of stories in those first few years where I think you can still feel the the, the, the war hanging over everything because they're very clearly anti-pacifist. So both the first Dalek story that has like the one of the Doctor's companions, Ian, kind of bullying these kind of peaceable file characters into fighting, largely because the TARDIS crew need their help to, to be able to get home, uh, get away rather. But a few years after that is a story called The Dominators, which is just taking the piss out of hippies for, for not wanting to go to war. Yeah, in both those cases, the people who are being bullied are kind of blonde and effete and kind of well we about our race abandoned war centuries ago doctor and it's not working out for you very well right now is it but yeah that idea that useless hippies even before actual useless hippies have appeared mm. on the british landscape are kind of there to be sort of beaten like a dirty carpet also like 
the character of Ian, who is basically the hero for the first couple of seasons, while the Doctor's still this kind of like grumpy antagonist figure, he kills quite a lot of people along the way, mm. which feels very weird. But if you think of like a character of that age, certainly the actor of that age was old enough to have done national service, if not have fought in the war. So I think there is just a slightly different attitude to these things because, you know, that's all still very recent at that point. Well, this sort of naturally connects us to the Daleks, and you can't talk about the series without talking about the Daleks, which are always discussed in terms of, well, they're the Nazis, aren't they? They're an allegory of the Nazis. They've got stiff arms, and they're into racial purity and genocide. And yet in the very first Dalek story, which I think is being shown this week, colorized, they're not that at all yet. They are a frightened, terrified race of mutants who've imprisoned themselves not just in a city, but also within these metal tanks. Jenny, when do the Daleks become the Nazis? And and, and why does that matter? I think exterminating was probably <laughs> the final point. I don't know, Andrew, you're guys, and you're like, in episode four in 1962, and that is not the kind of fan I am afraid. I couldn't tell you a specific politically incorrect episode. I could tell you that I don't like a lot of the Leela stuff. So Leela, let's to remind the listeners, Leela being Tom Baker's sidekick, the Savage as she is described, who is found on an alien planet. I think they are, the idea was intelligent but completely uneducated. And she's almost stabbing people and running around in a leather bikini. What are your objections here, Jenny? Oh, you know, that kind of something for the lads, you know, it went on for a very, very long time. I mean, I certainly right through the whole of, you know, Nissa and Tegan shared their bedroom and all that stuff. I think they did, as far as they were able have their Sarah Jane and have their female characters very slightly liberated like Tegan is bullshit to show that she's a feminist but you know they weren't massively ahead of the curve with all of that until they got back so I mean that you know it, it, it they kind of I think they thought they were being terribly progressive because like the women could drive but Leela, I, I don't like watching it and I don't I don't like showing it to the kids. She's always like, what's this doctor? And it's like a spoon, you know, and he's got to explain everything to her. Seth, let's go back to the, the, to the question I, I rather unfairly uh, sent Jenny's way. When do the Daleks become the Nazis? I think there, there is a bit of that in the first story, but it's, it's really the second time around we see them, the Dalek invasion of Earth, where they're running around Westminster Bridge with sink plungers in the air and Nazi salutes, and there's the whole imagery that goes to town. I have to say, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of um, Terry Nation as a writer because he was such a shameless hack. And yes. he was so <laughs> utterly shameless about how he would self-plagiarise and just sell them the same script again and again and again. Yep. There's a well-known story about the reason why Genesis of the Daleks comes about in the mid-70s is he pitches a story to the production team and they say, well, it's a very good script, Terry. The only problem is you've already sold it to us last year and the year before that and several times before that. And actually, I, I have a lot of fondness for it. I, I know a common criticism of early Doctor Who is how often these characters get captured and escape and so on. And actually, having grown up with that, I quite like it. And I think that's proper Doctor Who almost. <laughs> so you mentioned Genesis of the Daleks. That's one of the old ones that almost everybody with a vague interest in this will, will know. It's the one where Tom Baker and Sarah Jane and Harry are sent back to the very inception of the Daleks with a mission from the Time Lords to stop them ever existing. And it's not just a time travel story in a lots of ways. It is the time travel story. Could you effectively kill the infant Hitler before they become Hitler? 
And there is an amazing scene where Tom Baker's got the wires and he's like, I touch these two wires together and the Daleks will never, never come to be. Do I have the right? Coward. And well, Just kill baby Hitler. Well, you, you might have. That's He's why a bad guy. That's why you're not the doctor, John. It's bleak. It is bleak. And he kind of can't quite do it. And he's bailed out by circumstances. But that's kind of, to me, that always was the big kind of moral moment in it. If you've got time travel, surely it's your moral duty to remake the universe in a better way. And he keeps refusing to do it. What I, does that tell us? I think it's interesting that like that. I mean, that's that's the most the best articulated version of it. But as as with something like the Aztecs, which you mentioned earlier, the moral dilemma you get in a lot of the original Doctor Who is like, you know, can I change this thing? Mm. Do I have the right to do this thing? When the new series first kind of takes does a, a, an ethics of time travel story, it's can Rose's dad be saved? Yeah. And it puts instead of putting kind of like, you know, sort of globally important events, it puts the character, the, the companion character at the heart of it. And I kind of think that's a, a telling shift. Yeah, I, I actually found that really powerful, that one, because, you know, when you're a kid, time machine, let's go and see dinosaurs. When you're an adult, time machine, I just want to see my nan again. I just want to see, you know, the departed that we don't see anymore. And I found that really, you know, incredibly moving. So what are, let's do the roundup, what are our favourite politically orientated Doctor Who stories? Jenny, what's the one that says the most interesting thing about the world to you? I am a huge fan of Kinder for loads of reasons, which right. is the right. Peter Davison snake colonialism thing, where they, they kind of go down to this planet, Tegan gets in a terrible trance, but mostly it's about kind of basically white settlers being absolute idiots. It's essentially about an alien culture centred around a colossal snake which lives in the unconscious and can be brought out, sort of showing these white settlers how ignorant they are and how small they are. It's just incredibly clever about what lives in the head and what lives in the world and how the Doctor can make you see things in a different way. Fantastic. How about you, Seth? I'd go for Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which is hugely maligned because it does have the worst special effects ever of comically bad stop-motion dinosaurs puppets, but... What it has is a really fantastic plot. Dinosaurs are cropping up all over London, and it's because somebody unknown is moving back time in local zones. And it actually turns out it's a group of idealistic people in a conspiracy within the government to try and roll back the Earth to a mythical golden age where humans and dinosaurs can live happily side by side. And it, it looks at, you know, not just hippies in government, but it, it looks at genuinely people who want a better world and is actually more sympathetic towards some of these people than many of the figures in the government that you see in Doctor Who. It's fascinating because it's it's it shows the, the kind of length that people will go to to make what they have decided is a better world. And in this case, it involves effectively erasing the human population and replacing it only with the good people, only with the poets and the writers and the visionaries, the kind of their self-assigned creme de la creme of human society for Operation Golden Age. And it reminded me an awful lot of lots of political zealots I've encountered in the real world who think, well, you do have to break a few eggs to make the omelette and actually you end up breaking billions of eggs and there's still no omelette to be seen. It's also, by the way, written by Malcolm Hulk, who was literally a card-carrying communist. Yes. Like, who wrote a lot of early, a lot of the best early 70s Doctor Who stories. So the idea that the show wasn't political then is, is insane. Yeah, and it's almost his reaction against the kind of people he spent long mm. periods in smoke-filled rooms listening to people, you know, read leaflets at him. 
Yeah, exactly. That it's clearly a very a very personal script. I think. Yeah. How about you, John? What's 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 the one that says most interesting political things to you? Well, the reason I was just clenching my fist is I was going to do Invasion of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> that was my, I was thinking like no, it would go. For, I was thinking they'll go for the Green Death or something. Like they'll go for oh, the obvious one. That's what I'm going for. Oh, well, excellent. We've ruined you as well. In which case, I'm going to go for the Peter Capaldi two parter from 2015, the Zygon Invasion slash the Zygon Inversion, mm-hmm. on which there is actually a regular Podmasters panelist, <laughs> Ingrid Oliver, in, in uh, a fr- major role, friend of the podcast. Uh, yes. Yeah, but um, what I like about that one is talk to who has done many invasion stories it's done the occasional occupation story that's the only one i can think of that's about integration yeah and how you actually sort of have two populations that need to live together and it just ends on peter cabaldi making this 20 minute speech about like eventually if you want peace you have to sit down and talk to the other guy it yeah. doesn't end with anything exploding it ends with people talking yeah it's actually an invasion that turns out to be kind of a refugee crisis yeah that's exactly what it is it's so much more sophisticated in oh no monsters are coming again yeah well i'm i'm choosing the green death which is a john pertwee job and it is famously the one with the giant maggots it's also the one with the welsh miners made in the early 1970s when the miners strikes and the coal crisis is extremely current it's also the one where the villain is a demonic computer called boss which runs a company called global chemicals do you see where this is going and it's pumping chemical waste into mines which are making maggots grow to enormous vast and murderous size now you might think this is laid on a bit thick as a kind of critique of capitalism but i love it because quite apart from the most fantastic sense of of place you know shot in wales with welsh actors it also kind of dramatizes all the all the political obsessions of the early 70s that i remember from my kind of three-day week youth and through the kind of over-the-top absurdity of it kind of gets to the real feeling of the times it has a it, it has a strangely kind of current and extremely relatable quality to it. It's also the first one where we see the Doctor genuinely sad that someone is leaving him because his companion, Joe Grant, leaves to get married. And what, who does she marry? She marries an environmentalist. The coming thing in the early in the early 70s. These guys who believe in, you know, we're going to all be able to eat uh, mycoprotein. She basically goes away with a younger version of the Doctor. Just finally then, what are we expecting from Shuti Gatwa, the next generation? First, Black Doctor return of russell davis as the as the the showrunner seth what are you expecting i'm really looking forward to it judy Gat was a fantastic actor so i have high hopes russell t davis interestingly enough i've never found him that good or consistent as a writer of episodes i think there's often a pacing problem with a lot of the episodes he runs personally but i think he's a fantastic showrunner and he's really really good at spotting talent building people up supporting them script editing other people's scripts so i think it's in good hands for the next few years fingers crossed Jenny, what do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's another Scottish doctor. <laughs> Keep our average up this high. Nothing can go wrong. Well, although, of course, there's been two Scousers, so we're doing pretty well. And we had Tom Baker, who's the best one. So Still waiting on the Essex doctor. An Essex doctor would be fantastic. What, what are you expecting for the... Uh... I, I have absolutely no idea, but I'm looking forward to it because like, just looking at his other, his other shows recently, like years and years, and it's mm. a sin. I think, I think Russell's got angrier. And I imagine that's going to be there's going to be a lot of that in the scripts. Yeah. But also, I just love the fact that you know a few years ago, Star Trek uh, in in Picard did a big story about refugees, and Doctor Who cast one as the lead. Yeah, and I just think that's why Doctor Who is better than Star Trek. It, well, we all know that it is. I, I I think one interesting aspect was going to be that, you know, we for sixty years we've had this sort of interfering weirdo turn up and start poking his or her nose into the affairs of other planets and the historical situations. And now that interfering weirdo is going to be a person with black skin. And that's going to put a different 
cast on it. Literally, it's going to be particularly if you're going to uh, into Earth's history. It's not just going to be who is this interfering person with a scarf and a sonic screwdriver. The way that the uh, the rest of the cast reacts to him is going to tell us an awful lot about our own history, and I think that's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to renew things. I think it's going to open up to a lot of people who aren't already watching it. Although, let's face it, everybody kind of is already watching it. And that's the bunker for today. Thank you to Jenny Colgan. Thank you. Thank you to Seth Tabo. Thank you. And thank you to John Elledge, who I believe is on Papercuts right now. I, I mean, not at this precise moment, but yeah, I, I, I think I am the same day, actually. Very self, that's exciting. Self-same yes. day. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you haven't had enough geekery, at the weekend, I talked to Gavin Edwards, author of MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios, to find out about what the rise and possible fall of the Marvel movie empire tells us about life in the 21st century, right here on The Bunker. Your Patreon support makes all this possible, so please do search Patreon Bunker Podcast and consider supporting us with a small consideration. Every bit helps. We'll see you next time. For now, it's the end, but the moment has been prepared for. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison The producer was me, Jade Bailey the managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.